Welcome to Gears of Progress, a perfect place to learn about research and rehab engineering and assistive tech. As usual, I'm your host, Sasha, a postdoc at the University of Washington, and this is episode number two. Today, in my little postdoc studio, we have Mia Hoffman, an expert on early child mobility, a baby whisperer, and probably the only person that I know uh, in academia who keeps their research website updated. So welcome in. <laughs> yes. Welcome. To be fair, it's had to be updated. Uh, to be fair, I had to keep the website updated for all the conferences I've been at the past couple of months. So I just got back from ASPDM, the American Academy for Cerebral Palsy and Developmental Medicine, last week. So to be fair, I had to keep it updated. It was updated specifically last week for that conference. Okay, perfect. So I don't keep it updated all the time. I, it's easier to update than the CV because you just pop on to GitHub and update it. But anyway, thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs> the reason I was saying is um, I was reading the third year in your PhD, and I know that the <laughs> quarter here at UW hasn't even started, so you're really on top of things. Um, okay, the first question I like to usually ask is, um, from what I was reading on your research website, uh, your research career sort of started more um in a very different thing, not uh, very biomechanics or assistive tech related at all. So it's a lot of um, auditory neuroscience from what I'm seeing, some MRI uh, signal processing. How did you get to where you are at now? Yeah, so <laughs> I, uh, I started on the computational side of things, basically. Uh, so actually my first research experience was when I was in high school at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, so I said, I want to be an engineer. So they were like, well, we don't have engineering things. So they stuck me in data science. Uh, so I worked in the Mattel Center for Mathematical Medicine. I had no idea what I was doing. They gave me the kind of the task of, can you identify uh, like basically a diagnostic for preeclampsia using like 700 proteins? Uh, I had I didn't know what statistics was. I still don't know what I still don't know what statistics is. If I'm do gonna we? be honest, uh, but I learned how to code. Uh, I learned R. I didn't do anything useful that summer. I just made a lot of pretty plots and said, "Hmm, I think I can get a cluster." I don't think that did anything with the research, but I learned a lot. Uh, so then I knew, kind of going into college, that I wanted to work on research, uh, and I always liked biomechanics, so I got to do like some engineering camps in high school, uh, in middle school, and you know we got to do like. One of my favorite activities to date is they had us put our feet in baby powder and then walk on a black piece of paper, and you could we could okay. see our gates. We could like nice. track our gates. Okay. All right. So I got to do a lot of different activities. It's a lot of baby powder. It's probably more no, than I deal like with. A like a pan of baby. I actually wasn't that much. Like think about it. Like you get like like a file cabinet sheet and you put fill that with just like a dust of baby powder, and then you walk on it. It's kind of like moon. Like, I imagine walking on the moon would be okay. like, you know, you can see your footprints. Uh, kind of like walking on the sand, but though water doesn't wash it away. Honestly, an awesome outreach activity for anyone in the biomechanics community listening. That was at Ohio State, so steal that idea and reproduce it. But that kind of, you know, doing stuff like that really just kind of solidified for me that, like, I was interested in the biomechanics side of things. Like, I got to see my first, like, 
skate lab, and I remember looking at like the reflective motion capture and being like, oh, that's kind of cool. Uh, but then I went to college at the University of Notre Dame, which isn't have a big gate lab like we here we have here at UW. Uh, so kind of, I knew I wanted to do research. So I started off asking, basically I went door to door and talked to every professor. I emailed a bunch of professors and, ta- you know, well, some of them didn't, most of them didn't respond, obviously, because I was a, like, three weeks into college, and they said, huh, we don't want you. Uh, but then, like, early winter, somebody responded, ah, uh, right? And they said, hey, so I got to meet with Dr. Maria Holland, who was literally just setting up her lab at Notre Dame. She started in January nice. of 2018, basically, which is, I started college in 2017, uh, the fall of 2017. So basically, as soon as she got there, I was like, Hey, you want to take me and do research with me? She didn't even like. She didn't even have a computer basically yet. Um, and I, she, yes. But she was like, she met with me and she talked with me, uh, and she was like, if you're still interested, you can start next fall. You know, which is basically a smart idea. when she has a PhD student start, um, but so that's kind of how I got started in neuroscience because Maria runs the command lab. The center, the computational morphology of the mind at Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. So she really studies brain biomechanics okay. and how the brain develops and changes. And she had an interesting idea of what if we looked at how. Pri- so she, in her PhD, she found kind of like a universal folding law, and that basically uh, the bulges of your brain, like this, mm-hmm. are thicker than the insides of your brain, which are mm-hmm. called the sulci. They're thinner. Uh, and a lot of us do like mechanistic mm-hmm. principles, but why does the brain kind of have a repetitive folding pattern? It's very predictable in how your brain folds. Yeah. Uh, and it, there's atypical folding and things like autism spectrum disorder or Alzheimer's. There's different mm-hmm. folding patterns that occur, so we can maybe find out more about it. So anyway, so she was like, let's look at primate brains uh, to see if there's a similar fold, you know, like see if there's a similar cortical thickness finding. So I spent all three years of my uh, undergrad trying to figure out how it can measure the cortical thickness of the primate brain. It's not that easy. Uh, I spent a lot of time manually going through and drawing on MRI slices the cortex of primate brains. Yeah, because we we tried like segmentation, we tried a bunch of different softwares, right? Spent like probably like a year just trying different MRI segmentation softwares. Uh, That wasn't fun. Uh, to be honest, I learned well, I learned a lot about image processing and stuff, and that's kind of right. So then I got to do some math finally once we got a bunch of surfaces graded. Uh, so I got to do an undergrad thesis and basically, you know, show that we do see that kind of normal distribution, and then we kind of see a separation between sulci and gyri. Um, but one of my lab mates since kind of shown well, it's not. It's kind of a spectrum, right? There's not just pure. It's not binary. It's not gyri or sulci. There's kind of a spectrum okay. of curvatures. Um, but along that spectrum of curvatures, you do see the cortical thickness distribution is thinner in, like, the sulci-sulci and thicker in the gyri-gyri. But there's kind of a spectrum. Everything, got it. I mean, everything's a spectrum. Okay. So it was kind of cool. And then we got to show that in primates. So we just had our, uh, we just had a paper come out on that this year. I saw that. I was like, wow, she's <laughs> publishing on something else. Uh, so I, uh, a lot of that work is, I did a long time ago, like, way far away. That is, uh, but kind of, 
Yeah, so I did a lot of neuroscience in the summers. I did a couple REUs, auditory neuroscience. Uh, and that was where I got to really do my first human subject research. Mm-hmm. And I really liked that aspect of it. I really liked the people things. I hated sitting there for eight hours a day coding, right? Because I built a lot of the tests and stuff that I worked with. And I didn't love that. Uh, but I really liked the planning part of the research. I liked, I got one of the summers I got to design my own project, mm-hmm. basically. And it was a bad question. It was bad. Re- it wasn't good research, but I learned a lot, right? I got to do it, run the small human subject study by myself, mm-hmm. which was really fun, right? So coming into grad school, I knew a couple things. I knew that I wanted to work somewhere in biomechanics. Mm-hmm. Um, I really liked 3D printing. Because uh, basically in undergrad, I helped start a club called Enable ND, mm-hmm. where if you've ever heard of the Global Enable organization. Yes. But you can talk more about it. Yeah. For so Enable, for those of you who don't know, is a group that works on 3D printing, primarily prosthetic hands uh, and arms for individuals with limb differences. So I've done, so we kind of created a chapter at Notre Dame. Somebody, uh, Kelly, what's her, Prusak? I think Kelly Prusak. Uh, met with our, one of our kids in the local Michiana area and started the club in 2016, like the year before I came to Notre Dame. Uh, but we really went through the process of my freshman sophomore year. We were going through the process of really like establishing as a club. Um, but anyway, so I did a lot of like the logistics on the club and helped lead it my like junior and senior year. Mm-hmm. But it was that experience really of like getting to work one on one with kids their families on like something that works for them mm-hmm. that's kind of i wanted to get back on the human side of things okay right so coming into grad school i said okay i really like 3d printing we've been doing a lot of it we've been working on different design projects all sorts of different things i was like i really like that i liked upper limb stuff because i've been doing a lot of that uh i like brain still so i kind of applied going into grad school i applied across the board i applied to work on like computational brain biomechanics, but pediatrics. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like looking at TBI and stuff, doing some detective work. Mm-hmm. Um, all the way to like, I think my NSF GRFP proposal was to do like 4D bioprinting of the spine in p- pediatrics. So I kind of applied all over there. I, you know, I saw, hey, Cat Steele at the University of Washington is doing biomechanics and design things in pediatrics. I was like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of right. So I, my t- final two decisions were in like a three D printing lab at the University yes. of Michigan, uh, where there's potential to work on like an FDA clinical trial for like a medical device. Mm-hmm. Um, to like working with Cat and here doing who knows what. Um, you know, <laughs> I think we talked about like three different projects when I was considering okay. here, and I think it was the one that caught my eye was working on like power and mobility combined with like studying like the brain i was like oh that's perfect you know i was like i have mri experience like i'll bring that we didn't end up working on mris (laughs) but that's kind of how i ended up at uw was i said hey i want to work with kids i want to be back as an experimentalist Mm -hmm. and this was the place to do that okay that's great uh when i was looking you up i found that kind of your research motto is uh let kids be kids really enjoy that uh having two kids myself do you want to talk about the 
we're probably going to let, let, let's dive into the first project because I know you're doing a lot. So the first project on this early mobility intervention, can you talk about the current state of um, early childhood mobility, uh, the current challenges, and um, especially in the light of the disability community, where we're at and what gaps we have oh, to fill. There's, there's still a lot of big gaps. Uh, so there's kind of, I'm gonna take kind of my disability studies view here uh, when I'm talking. So just, I'm sorry to all uh, people. Uh, I have strong views here. Um, but basically at the end of the day, what we should come down to is the best thing for any kids is to get moving as early as possible. It helps just trigger this cascade of developmental Uh, improvements, right? We see increases in language capacity, how peer-to-peer interactions, just like really the development of everything just mm-hmm. clicks when we start moving, right? You're even, you're, you're like even helps like how your gaze aligns and head coordination is all coupled with like the starting of movement. So mm-hmm. it's this really fundamental thing that's just kind of deprived mm-hmm. for a lot of kids because uh, we say, Oh, you know, uh, their insurance isn't going to cover a powered mobility device till they're five. Or it's easier to just put them in a stroller and push them around, right? Or this kid isn't able to do that. Any kid is able to move is what I've seen. Uh, so I do a lot of work with powered early powered mobility devices, which is anything from an adapted ride-on car. So think of that toy Jeep. You get off, they drive around the backyard when you're little. They get off the shelf at... Toys R Us, we modify those. Mm-hmm. So instead of a foot puddle activation, we'll maybe use a switch that's mounted on the steering wheel. So this was really started with Cole Galloway mm-hmm. at University of Delaware. And it's a now global organization called Go Baby Go. So that's kind of the outreach side of it is we mm-hmm. provide is a group of volunteers adapts these cars using pool noodles and PVC pipes and mm-hmm. all sorts of different yes. things for Same. kids to drive. Okay. Um, right? So, but maybe that's not the best option for all kids right is it's kind of you have to find a group of volunteers what's usually the age for that uh that really saying? five and under five and so under. any kid as early as six months okay so can s- use typical sit- sitting yeah as age. soon as, okay. as soon as a kid can sit basically okay. they can drive okay um like any kid can use it right so we see in it really helps socialization and just mm-hmm. a lot of parents really like the ride on cars because it's just this child-friendly mm-hmm. view instead of a giant powered mobility Absolutely. powered wheelchair that's 300 pounds and the toddler is 20 pounds they're heavy uh <laughs> right and it's hard to move so a lot of families love the ride on cars because they're really friendly right you can get them in the latest what's the latest uh pixar movie coco nah i I, you my have kids are, kids. My kids are too tiny to. Come on, what you know the latest Disney movie is? We uh, went to the, the Elemental. Elemental, right? Really so like, cool. there's whatever the latest and greatest. You can get a ride on car and adapt <laughs> it, right? So it's kind of it's really child friendly perspective, uh, but so there some limitations too, right? They're really hard to steer because they use manual steering. Uh, some of the new ones use remote control, so we've been able to just kind of hack them and you know rewire them a little bit. <laughs> but that still takes a team of engineers to do that. Yes. So there's some commercial options now. So there's the Bugsy and Wizzybug and other companies. Okay. Other countries. <laughs> okay. Sorry. That's new. Uh, but the Bugsy and Wizzybug are definitely one of probably my favorites of the power mobility devices for little kiddos. Because uh, they're really, you can adapt them for either 
joystick control or switch control. So a lot of kids, it's harder for them to use a joystick when they're little. We don't know yet. Nobody's really done the study of joystick versus switch formally. But a lot of kids, right, the ride-on car, only per, you can only really go steering's really hard. Mm-hmm. But that switch, that big switch is really easy for kids to target. And you mm-hmm. can position it to maximize the abilities of the kids. So you can maybe use a hand, but you could also use a foot. You could use a knee. You could use your head. Okay. Right? Okay. And you could even use alternative controls like a sip and puff, which mm-hmm. is basically for this. If you don't know, a sip and puff is a switch that you blow or suck on to activate. Perfect. Right? Yeah. So I really really like this op- those mm-hmm. two because... You can kind of customize them. You can do a little more head. They can do a little mm-hmm. more uh, padding too and security. But they're not available here in the U.S. The only device available here in the U.S. is called the Permobile Explorer Mini. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just got recently FDA approved in 2020. So right before I started my PhD, conveniently. Um, but we've been doing some of the first work with it here at UW. Uh, my advisor Heather Fellner has been kind of leading the charge on that. So she did the fir- one of the first clinical trials with it where families were having both a ride-on car mm-hmm. and an Explore Mini that they used for eight weeks in their home environments. Uh, so I've gotten to do a little work on that study, which has been fun. Yes, um, so that. <laughs> and then we've been kind of the first like really like structured in-lab study where we partnered with the team, the CREATE team here. So the CREATE is the Center for Research and Education and Assistive Technologies Experiences here at UW. Uh, our CREATE team partnered with iLabs, the Infant Learning and Brain Sciences group, uh, to really see how does a lot of things change with powered mobility intervention, right? So one of my uh, fellow researchers, Dr. Nicole Zeno, uh, was looking at how sit and stand postures change with Explore Mini, we had people looking at how language development changes using the Alina recorder. Yes. So all sorts of different things. We're, we're looking at powered mobility interventions, how powered mobility skill changes. All these, it's this giant study with, tw- what, 13 kids and like 150 data collections. It was a beast. That's how yeah. I spent most of my uh, first and second year was really learning from the best on how to design an experiment and doing this mm-hmm. crazy study that had us hanging balls from the ceiling and hitting them with pool noodles while kids drove around and shooting hoops and just really having fun nice honestly you really got to be creative when you're doing research with kids uh i think with adults it's already a challenge especially even if it's like a two-hour session they get tired they get bored you need to entertain them because you know that as soon as um you know they're they their attention goes somewhere else then you're not gonna it might affect the performance because uh, they're just like not there. They're just they're done. <laughs> but with kids, it, it's even harder because attention span yeah. is very now short. You go, now, you, now you go toddlers. <laughs> Woo! Yes. Like you literally have kids falling asleep in your session sometimes, <laughs> crying. Te- we we do it all. I uh, have learned to sing so many random songs. The wheels on the bus is basically permanently etched in my brain. Perfect. Yes, uh, we sing songs when we hike sometimes. <laughs> I mean, that's what you gotta do yes. all the time, all the time. I gotta say, I think my favorite song to sing is still the Notre Dame alma mater. My kids love that one. So nice. I sing a lot of okay. that. We gotta make them all go to Notre Dame in the future. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Brainwash them early. Okay, so you mentioned that those uh, Go Baby Go cars and the Explorer Mini options, this is when the kid is able to sit 
what options do we have when we have smaller babies? Because ideally, right, as a second-time mom, I know that, you know, tummy time is important. You need to place your baby down. They need to exercise, and they need to move, 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 you know, as soon as we're pretty much out of the hospital. Uh, That is the advice that I hear. Uh, What's... What's available? So, I mean, crawling-wise, there's not really a powered mobility device for crawling. Uh, but, I mean, honestly, a kid doesn't... Crawling isn't this fundamentally... It's Crawling is no longer a milestone, mm-hmm. uh, according to the American's pediatric. Uh, yeah, some kids so skip right, it. So, you probably saw a new thing that it's no longer a milestone. Okay. It's crawling, right? It's not the most important thing. Uh, some kids... Don't crawl. Sometimes they do the butt scooting thing. I don't know if any of your kids have done that. No, no, no. <laughs> don't have <laughs> but, any right, butt scooting. Yes. A lot of kids I've seen just literally will just roll across the room like a log. <laughs> uh, right? There's so many different forms of mobility. It's not always just the crawling you think of. Uh, so crawling can sometimes be skipped, but there are devices out there to support that. Uh, so there's the frog uh, from the Fro- Frog Mobility LLC. So that's a passive. Mm-hmm. Mobility device uh, that really lets you lay on your stomach and move around. Um, so that's really cool. That device I really like. It was created by a family of child. I think he believe their child had spina bifida, mm-hmm. um, and they really wanted to find a way for him to get on the ground with his peers. Um, so that's probably that one's really cool. Uh, and then I know there's a company. I think it's in Sweden that's created a small crawling device. They, it's basically like kind of a stool on wheels they can lay on, um, and then kind of like turtle crawl mm-hmm. around. Uh, but there's not been as much work in the crawling area. I know Cole Galloway and his team did some really early stuff looking at all sorts of different mobility devices that mm-hmm. were powered maybe from a child's kicking or stomping, um, and some of those had a child on their belly. But really, there hasn't been anything commercial there. But really, once a kid can sit even with support, mm-hmm. right, we can get them in a powered mobility device. Okay. So whether that be a ride-on car or the Explore Mini. Okay. And so you're mentioning basically um, most of the time families who have kids with um, a form of disability that prevents them from uh, being as mobile, um, the only time the insurance will kind of pay for some sort of a mobility device is five and up. Um, is that- I mean, they're starting, they're starting to cover it, but okay. so insurance kind of has this thing of, We'll cover a mobility device every five years, uh, right? So a lot of PTs don't want to, you know, families, PTs, clinicians don't really want to start spending that. Okay, you get one device every five years, right, of, of powered share that they're going to get when they're two and they're going to outgrow in a year, mm-hmm. right? The thing is the insurance hasn't caught up to the fact that children grow mm-hmm. quite rapidly. Absolutely. Something that fits you when you're two doesn't quite fit you when you're five. Uh, so we really need insurance to catch up on that. Uh, and a lot of other things, right? We can all fight the insurance companies all day, every day, about a lot of things that we deem medically necessary or important to the development of a child, right? And they're like, well, if the child can uh, get to the toilet, they're fine. They don't care how they get there, yeah, right? They don't think about the uh, all the F words, right? They don't think about fun and family and friends. They just kind of think about function, Mm-hmm. Right. If you can ambulate in your home, that's all good for them. But community, that that's not required. Nobody yeah. needs to just go outside their home and explore the world around them. Um, so was the bigger studies that you guys have been doing with iLab, um, 
in terms of comparing uh is that is that correct? Comparing Mini Explorer and utilizing Go Baby Go, or so that was our uh, that's a clinical trial mm-hmm. that uh, Dr. Fellner we did in conjunction with uh, Lisa Kenyon mm-hmm. over at CMU and Sam Logan's team down at Oregon. Uh, so that one I didn't get help with the actual data collection. So that was before my PhD, uh, but that studies some the results from it have just shown incredible growth in the Bailey. Uh, my side of that is I'm uh, doing my engineer thing mm-hmm. and looking at maps again. Absolutely. Uh, so we've started putting GPS on some of these devices and seeing how our family's using them and mm-hmm. where they're using them. Are they just using them at home or are they taking them out in the community with them? Right. The goal is families aren't, right, any t- I'm a child's exploring. We want them to explore different environments, mm-hmm. see different things, interact with different things, tear things off the walls, run into different things on the playground, mm-hmm. play with their siblings, right? All kids go out and explore in Absolutely. different places. Same with a kid using maybe the Explorer Mini. Mm-hmm. So we went, where do they go? So I got to use some GPS data and mm-hmm. see where they're going. Uh, what we saw was mostly they use the device at home, which, I mean, isn't shocking when you have a two-year-old. How much time do you spend out in the community, Sasha? You have a two-year-old, I think? I actually try, for the sake of my sanity, I try to get him outside as much as possible. It's kind of, uh, it used to be the same thing when we had a puppy. You know, you don't want them stuck at home because then they're going to destroy the home. <laughs> yeah, you want them out in the community destroying the community. Exactly. Um, <laughs> so, yes, ideally, but um, I understand um you know, it's 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 one thing to just kind of pack a child versus you know packing a child plus a mobility device yeah, that might be bulkier. Yeah, and- unfortunately, a lot of these families probably don't have an accessible van yet, right? And Explore Mini is fifty pounds, fifty two pounds, I think exactly. Uh, and I mean, we've gotten it in every car, like mm-hmm. even the smallest car you can rent from UW. We've got it, and I just kind of put down the seat, and it pops up. Okay. But, I mean, like, still, like, looking, I mean, it's not yeah. easy to move in and out, and especially if you have two or three other kids that you're... Absolutely, Right, yeah. it's not, maybe not the easiest thing to transport, right, or to ride on a car can fill the entire back seat. Yeah. Um, did you get to notice, uh, was, was this research that you were doing, the importance of um, accessibility of... Uh, community <laughs> and just getting to those communities, getting to the parks, yeah. getting around parks, the, accept- the the entire accessibility issue uh, <laughs> that I started noticing more when I, you know, be- became a mom and started using strollers. That was already a struggle <laughs> oh, most of yeah. the time. How many missing curb cuts have you found? <laughs> Way too many. <laughs> uh, so that's actually a paper we just got published. It just came out this pat what, last Saturday? Mm-hmm. Uh so I'm excited for that work to be out. But this was actually with a separate study. We've been, I've gotten my hands on a lot That's of great. random things since we started this PhD. Uh, somebody has finally taught me a work-life balance. So I spent some time in the mountains recently. But this paper is really fun to write because we kind we partnered with Project Sidewalk here at UW, um, which for those of you who don't know, Project Sidewalk is an open source volunteer-based group that goes through and mark uses Google Maps to mark sidewalk accessibility. So what we did was we used that data. Uh, one of my collaborators managed to find a way to kind of get a score of how accessible the sidewalk segments are. So with the zero being, it's really inaccessible, you know, 
Maybe there's not even a sidewalk. Maybe there's a hundred cracks. Maybe there's poles in the way. All sorts of barriers. You name it. Uh, there's so many barriers on the sidewalks, right? Maybe this doesn't even incorporate things like grade. If something's really steep, mm-hmm. you can't get up in a chair. Um, but and then a one being super accessible, right? We're seeing nice flat sidewalks that are well maintained, curb cuts, all of the fun things that make. Not even just somebody who's using a wheelchair's life easier, right? It makes moms with strollers yeah. and the mailman, even those uh, Amazon delivery robots, right? <laughs> They're going to be on the sidewalk soon. And maybe Amazon will finally be the one that fixes this problem because they're going to have to get their little drones around. Maybe. But that study was really fun because we got, we again had some GPS trackers out mm-hmm. on uh, some ride on cars this time. We were looking at where people were going in the environment. And what we really saw was if a family found an accessible route, they would use it again and again and again, right? And they kind of found their path and they stuck to it and they used that ride on car a lot because it was easier. Um, But for families that might not have found an accessible path, it was harder, right? Maybe they, or they'd have to drive in somewhere that might not be as fun to explore, like the alley behind their home. Mm Mm-hmm. Even if they live near a big park, they might not be able to get there because they have a really steep grade. I see. Um, One of the other things, one of the other, I feel like it's mobility-related projects, is uh, the harness uh, project that you're doing with Heather. I think it's pretty cool. Right, it's back to that um, idea that we need to get the kids um, moving in any way they want to move. But so... Let me briefly be the engineer and describe the system we're talking about. So I'm talking about the Puma system, the Portable Mobility Aid for Children uh, from Enlightened LLC. This was originally started, again, with Cole Galloway. He's kind of a genius. Uh, but he kind of reached, he said, okay, we have a body weight support system. This isn't, I don't, he's not the first to do a sec- two degree of freedom body weight support second. This is the first one, though, that's not tethered really to the ceiling and is passive, unlike the Zero-G system that's kind of also a two degree freedom system but it's a lot more expensive mm-hmm. um so this one's really cool because basically you know there's a pop-up tent that you'd use as a, with a canopy when you're tailgating at a football game or out of the beach uh so we basically take that frame mm-hmm. uh and you add two cross crossbars that just kind of snap into place uh, and then you basically add a small pulley system mm-hmm. where Basically, the uh, harness system runs on one that bar, mm-hmm. and then the bar runs along two other bars. Okay. Uh, so, the, let's a kid, and then you have a passive weight offset. Uh-huh. Um, and then you have your kiddo and your harness. So, you have your harness, you have your pulley system that's moving along the bars, and you have the weight on the other side. Okay. Uh, basically, it's really simple to set up. We can set it up, now that we know how to set it up, uh, probably in five minutes. Okay. Right, the longer part is tying streamers up to make it look pretty. What's the fo- footprint? Nine foot by nine foot area, okay. right? And then you have a, let's a kid play in a nine foot by nine foot area with some of their weight offset. Okay. Right, it's a really simple system. Uh, James Solser has a cool paper where he kind of evaluates different rehab technologies for young kids. And he kind of gave this one, he was like, this is one of our favorites. Yeah, it was really Basically. Uh, but I really like the system, A, just because it's simple, right? You can just pop into a family's home or a clinic, right? Not every clinic has, you know, two, $3,000 to put in a permanent bar system. Mm-hmm. Families definitely don't, mm-hmm. right? But this is something you can maybe get from 
a technology loan closet Mm -hmm. and borrow for a year or two while your kids, you know, taking their first steps or crawling or really just even if you just want to work on kneeling. Mm -hmm. Right. So the system is really cool because it's just quick to set up. But anyway, so some of the first we're doing, we're working with it with kids with Down syndrome three and under who are pre-ambulatory. So that means they're not walking yet. Uh, Really anyone who's sitting up Mm -hmm. is coming into the study. Um, and we're trying to see if we're playing with partial body weight support. Mm-hmm. Uh, does it help them get standing earlier or start taking their first steps? Okay. For those of you who might not know, kids with Down syndrome have hypotonia and ligament luxidity, which means their joints are kind of loose. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they do crazy p- postures that I'm like, how are you doing the splits right now? Uh, and they have a lower muscle tone. That's what hy- hypotonia means. Mm-hmm. Right. So it takes them a little more time to start pulling the stand and walking on those anti-gravity skills are yeah. really difficult for them. What's, so, the, what's the average? Really, uh, first steps are around 26 months. 26, so over two years. So, yeah. So that's a little bit behind their peers, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, you'll see them ride on cars. There's a lot of papers with ride down, kids with Down syndrome using ride on cars mm-hmm. and different things. Uh, there's even one where they started to use the Explore Mini. But the Puma system hasn't been – well, okay, there's been two papers – with the Puma system where they've tested out. One was a case study mm-hmm. uh, by Ellen Cocconi's group uh, where they gave it to family to use for basically, like, a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they the family used it a lot. They used it, like, 30 minute on average, like, 30 minutes a day, mm-hmm. which is way more than a lot of other mobility devices. Okay. So it's really cool. So, like, and what we saw was that kids started walking earlier, and the family used it a lot. And then they did a kind of, like, a... Another, that group did another study where they kind of said, okay, what is just, like, families' perspectives of this device? Mm-hmm. And everyone, families were kind of like, oh, the kids were a lot more confident with it. So we wanted to take a little more, you know, what view of it uh, as a therapy tool, mm-hmm. as probably it would be used, right? So kind of doing three sessions a week of not PT, but kind of PT, physical therapy, for mm-hmm. those of you who don't know what PT is, um, right? We just kind of had kids come in and play, with kind of, it wasn't PT, but to me being an engineer, I was like, it's kind of PT. Um, right, as we are just playing. So there's a lot of, uh, for about a year of my life, I uh, spent a, most e- a lot of evenings with kiddos with Down syndrome mm-hmm. and my uh, partner in crime, Raham, uh, which playing, singing, dancing, mm-hmm. doing whatever I could to entertain a one-year-old or two-year-old. Uh, did a lot of bowling and knocking things down, including myself. Kids love That's it. That's the best you, uh, part. Yes. Yeah, kids <laughs> absolutely love when you harm yourself. Not actually harm yourself, but, you know, like, I've fallen down and I can't get back up. Harm they yourself. love to push me down. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so... But that, that's really, that got me kind of, it wasn't clinic experience, but it kind of got me clinic experience, mm-hmm. right? I learned a lot from those kids and those families. Okay. Um, same with the kids in all my studies. I've gotten to do some clinic shadowing, but like there is really, you know, I kind of got to see what does, if, you know, what does the, what should a device look like mm-hmm. if it's going to be used, right? It's like, this is something a family could use. Like that one, families could use, right? What I liked about it is we had siblings come. Mm-hmm. and play with their, you know, like, play with their younger sibling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it was running around and screaming, and they could just be kids. Yes. They were playing together. You know, they were having so much fun singing and dancing and running around tables and knocking down block towers as soon as I could build them. Okay. All right? That's what it's about. 
It's not about, okay, we're gonna do this exercise again, right? Like that's not how kids learn. That's not how kids develop, right? We know they learn from exploring and kind of just these random little bouts of movement <laughs> and running around and ca- causing chaos. Okay, so that's that sounds like uh, a beauty and at the same time, you know, a blessing and at the same time a curse of doing uh, research with kids, especially this young, right? There's these challenges that you have to address. You have to, A, you have to keep the kid um, entertained for a long period of time. Uh, B, you need to consider that they do get tired really fast. How do you, okay, so that's, that's just doing data collection. Yeah. How do you analyze that data then, right? Because uh. we're, we're used to, especially I feel like in rehab engineering, um, when we talk about studies, things have to be very rigid. They're very be- linear, right? That's how yeah. a traditional research study is. It's yes. very linear. It's, okay, we're going to walk on this treadmill for 10 minutes, yes. or we're going to do the six-minute walk test, and you're going to walk, and we're going to see how far you walk. Um, so that's, that doesn't work with toddlers. Honestly, like you shouldn't be doing that with kids anyone. over the age of 12. Or anyone, I feel like Honestly, sometimes, you like, know, yeah. It, yeah, it's, just being a research participant ourselves, we've done it plenty of times. It, it's the worst. It's not, it's not, it's not fun. a real world either. I, you know, I, I struggle with this. I feel like it's, it, it's a very fine line that we walk on, especially when we talk about uh, rehab engineering research in general. Um, or anything that has to do with uh, human research, you it's a fine line of keeping things very constrained for you to understand where the effects are coming from, what is causing it. Um, but at the same time, just this is too clean, not yeah. real life, um, and you cannot yeah. achieve the same results. I mean, I our, like. data, our data is probably messier okay. than uh, an adult participant walking <laughs> on a treadmill. That I can pr- confirm you from any of the studies I've worked on. Um, so a lot of times that's getting creative, right? So it's embedding systems, sensors into the devices, mm-hmm. maybe. Um, or saying, what's the smallest amount of measurements I can get, right? It's starting to look at things like Markerless motion capture. So I was just at AACPDM and I saw a really cool presentation where somebody was measuring, was using markerless motion capture with the Trexo, which is, uh, for those of you who don't know, the Trexo is kind of like a uh, mobile gate walker that's robotic. I don't know, it's kind of like an exoskeleton comboed with a walker uh, where it just mimics the walking patterns mm-hmm. of a kid. Uh, it's, it's really expensive. Uh, I have love and hate relationships with it. It's, you know, it's, oh, okay, cool. Can get kids who might not walk, walk in that walking pattern. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, like, at what cost? Because that thing's probably at least $100,000, I guess. Yeah. Right? It's, it's, it's probably one of the more expensive exoskeletons. It's not this biomotive spark that maybe a family could actually afford. Mm-hmm. Trexos would definitely be either you're rich or a clinic would have it, maybe. Okay. But... It is really cool. The Trexa was the study was really really cool. So what they were doing, they could use markerless motion capture. So they used uh, what's the they are, they are markerless. So they used that system with the device, which normally the Trexa is locked out. But, you know, it's a big system, mm-hmm. uh, so it's hard to use mo- like optic based mm-hmm. motion yeah. capture because you can't see it, right? A lot of the devices we have, it's hard to see, mm-hmm. right? So we did the Explore Mini. 
we when we had to explore mini, we put markers on the device. Okay. But still, it's hard to track, right? Yeah. But if say I'd wanted to like track a child's position, mm-hmm. the tray would have blocked that, and we wouldn't been able to use that. But maybe we could have used optical based. Mm-hmm. Where was I going with this? <laughs> uh, back to the harness. Back to research. the harness. Uh, but really, so like that study, we said. Again, how can we kind of minimize the number of measurements we did, right? So we had some families do some surveys. This study was so simple in the measurements we did. We just used actigraphs, which are basically body-worn triaxial mm-hmm. accelerometers. So we put one on the right wrist, the back, and the right ankle. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be honest, the only measurements I'm using are from that right ankle. Okay. Because uh, if you put something on a child's back and they're in a harness that's tethered to the space, they're kind of like the uh, punt that little uh, dummy clown you used to like hit and then it'd go right back up when you're a little, uh, right? So it's like, we can't get measurements from that because that harness just stays upright because the system wants to counteract gravity, which means it's going to hold that child upright, uh, which means the walking kind of looks like moon crawling. If they're crawling, it kind of looks like moon crawling because they kind of like get this very funny gait because the system's trying to pull them upright. Um, so they got to be careful with the body weight offset depending on what motor skills mm-hmm. you're working on. Uh, right, so if you put something at 40% body weight, they're probably going to be a lot more upright mm-hmm. versus like 10 to 50%. They can do a little more crawling and stuff easier. Um, but, right, it's just saying, okay, how can we use just accelerometers to measure something instead of saying, okay, we're going to have a bunch of, we're going to do motion capture, mm-hmm. right, which is so much harder, right? Think about trying to put 20 to 30 sticky dots on a two-year-old on a moving child yeah yeah they uh my one of my lab mates has done that on a Putting four-year-old pants is already takes, difficult exactly <laughs> one of my uh lab mates has been try- has been doing it on a four-year-old and she's like i just let him tape my head while i do this yeah. even then right the dots start coming off as soon as they have that fine motor skills those dots are off even if they don't have them they magically fall off yeah uh, so saying, okay, how can we use different measurements, right? Accelerometers is a great potential tool for that. Honestly, for me, a lot of it's, okay, can we measure in the device itself, right? Instead of putting something on a child is how can we measure in the environment? Mm-hmm. So whether that be something like markerless based motion capture or, you know, building an Arduino sensor system to put into the actual device we're using, uh-huh. right? Sometimes that can be the most reliable thing. Is something that's in the environment. Okay. Um, what was the hypothesis you were looking at <laughs> with this study? Because it sounded like a very, uh, a very chaotic uh, data collection scene. <laughs> it was at least, really like fun data collection. <laughs> uh, but we were really looking at. So from my side, right, we we're kind of interested in how does things like gross motor skills change. How do the, does a child have higher physical activity levels? Do they spend more time upright? Uh, so we could use those accelerometers that they were wearing to get measurements of like how physically active they are. So right, so hopefully we're hoping right. We want to show that this device is cool, uh, so insurance covers it. Okay. So we want to say okay, kids are more physically active. Uh, most of our kids weren't more physically active. Okay. Um, I'm actually writing up this paper right now, so anything I say here might be slightly different. Okay. Uh, in a couple weeks, just gonna say that now. Um, but really, we saw this really cool inverse relationship, right? So a kid might be less physically active in the device, but we're using accelerometer. What does accelerometers measure? Acceleration. Exactly. Uh, but if a kid's standing, <laughs> what's there not going to be any of? There's no acceleration. There's no acceleration, okay. right? So if movement counts, which is how we measure physical activity, that's how your 
wristwatch knows you're working out and it's like, ah, oh, you hit your exercise goal for the day. Yeah. It's measuring that it you're moving your wrist a lot. Okay. Uh, but, right, so maybe that measure of physical activity didn't work out when we're looking at, can we help kids stand more, right? How about looking at a gyroscope? So data. if we didn't have a gyroscope, Dang so we it. just had an accelerometer. Okay. So I had a triaxial accelerometer. So basically, okay. we look, we use it as an inclinometer. I see. Uh, and we're able to find the angle to basically say, okay, they're either standing or, so they're upright or they're horizontal. Got we it. kind of had a, it was, it's not the perfect system. Okay. Uh, but if you only have an accelerometer, uh, you get creative. Mm-hmm. Right? So saying, okay, can we see how much time they're spending on their feet? Mm-hmm. And what we do see is there is an increase in how, in the amount of time a child spends on feet. Mm-hmm. From, like, their first session with the device to, like, their last with that arch body yes. support. Right? So, maybe it's not right away we're not going to see, like, a change like that, which makes sense. Right? You don't just automatically turn on the lights. You have to build those muscles up a little bit. But it's really helping that confidence mm-hmm. is what we're saying. Is that, okay, it's giving it a safe place to fall. Right? Imagine it, you're learning to walk in on the moon. It would be a little easier. You'd fall a little slower. Right? You might be more likely to do something. Right, the system kind of add the Puma system kind of adds that same confidence in starting to get up, makes it a little easier. How do you measure confidence? Uh huh, that's a good question. I haven't figured it out yet. If you figure out the uh, measurement, I figured out partic- we, there's a participation, but uh, confidence that's a lot harder to measure in a two year old. I uh, honestly, all these kids got to be pretty confident. The amount of times you have to fall to learn to walk is a lot. Uh, I think if we felt that much, we'd just be done with it. Um, I, you know, when you were talking about this, building this confidence with the harness, I was thinking how um, I picked up a game of ice hockey when I was 21, when I started grad school at Northwestern, because I thought that was the most Midwestern thing you can do. (laughs) (laughs) And I loved it so much, I'm still doing it. Um, And the confidence was probably you know it's this the the idea of you keep on getting up uh without being confident that you're not gonna fall (laughs) um or doing something more being more active or doing something more crazy you know where you're doing like a hockey stop or you're (laughs) you're doing tight turns without this idea that you're gonna fall. I think um, maybe yeah. if you could go that way, um, like this idea of them engaging more um, yeah. in, in in some sort right. of an activity. Pulling to stand, climb. Pull, yes. Right. I saw kids who came in and they were just kind of sitting the first mm-hmm. couple sessions, but by the end, by the time I saw them walk out, they were like climbing on all of our benches, and I was like, uh, I don't know what to do. You turned into a monkey. This is great. If you could measure, <laughs> oof. That would be cool if you could measure um, some sort of a participation right yeah. before and then that's right after. That's kind of my hope with my uh, next study. Okay. But that, that participation is looking at a different system. That's great. Um, okay. I really like that. Um, your third pillar of your <laughs> research um, is a switch access uh, toolkit. I'd love to hear more. We kind of uh, touched briefly on this idea of switch um switch control for the uh is it the explorer mini that has it uh no it's the 
Well, so the ride-on car is okay. only switch access. Okay. Well, there's now some joystick ones, but mostly switch mm-hmm. access there. Uh, but really, switch access is most known for uh, with young kids in switch adapted toys. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for you, you've heard of Husky Adapt before. I've heard of it, uh, but let not. Me, let me explain it for our, our audience. Listeners. So Husky Adapt is a group here at the University of Washington uh, that works. It's a student organization. That kind of does a lot of different things. Uh, stands for Accessible Design and Play Technologies. Kind of became the outreach leg of a lot of different labs here on campus. Kind of said, hey, let's group all of our outreach together into this student club. Uh, so the lovely founders created this club uh, that I'm now the student exec chair of. Ooh. Don't know how I'm in charge of that already. But, you know, people graduate and they say, hey, you. you're, you're good at that. <laughs> um, but... One of the big things we do is toy adaptations. So for those of you who do not know, commercial toys are not accessible to all kids. Uh, They require sometimes fine little motor skills that not all kids have. Uh, So so to adapt a toy, basically, what you do is you open it up to take out the battery so you don't electrocute yourself, uh, unscrew some things, and take it open, and then you say, okay, where is there a switch that I want to adapt? So maybe that's to change a song on a toy or make a race car go on a remote mm-hmm. control. Uh, but basically what you do is you put a mono audio jack in parallel with that switch. Uh, so you do some soldering, make a nice little exit point, close up the toy and off you go. If you guys want to learn more about this, check out the Husky app website or makers making change has some great demos, but anyway, nice so, plug in. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's what I'm here for is to Shameless. connect people. No, I, hey, great. I got to connect it's people great. with the resources. Because I didn't hear about this until I came to UW, basically. And I thought, it, I, I think it's a great thing that more people need to know about. Because if you're not in the community or you have a child with disability, maybe you don't even know about it. Um, so there's a lot of different libraries around. But anyway, so that's the kind of the switch adapted toy, right? So then what's that switch? So that switch can literally basically be anything that creates a mechanical connection. So most switches are, the commercial switches are $75 at least. Uh, They're really expensive, right? So I'm thinking of the uh, AbleNet Big Red switch, 75 bucks for a injection piece of mold with a very small $1 button inside of it. It's kind of criminal, right? But basically any of these switches have a mono audio jack that you can just plug into a toy or even computer systems. So Microsoft has created the uh, adaptive hub that you can use to connect to your computer. There's the adaptive controller for the Xbox. There's even one for the Switch now. If you guys want more information on adaptive gaming, check out Able Gamers. Uh, They've got some great resources to learn more about that. But not a lot of those systems aren't great for a one-year-old, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And the Switch adaptive toys, they have to be adapted by volunteers like those at Husky Adapt um, or Tech LPA or wherever your local organization is, and they break really quickly. So, or you can buy them online uh, for like a hundred bucks instead of the normal twenty bucks they'd be. Okay. Which is just criminal, honestly. Every, until like until uh, some lobbyists figure out the switch adapted toy problem and just make companies like Fisher Price put in that little audio jack for seventy five cents. Uh, we're going to have to keep doing that. But, you know, if you, I'm having an eighth grader solder or something, that connection's not perfect all the time. Um, sometimes it breaks, right? Yeah. Talk to some clinicians, and I'm like, 
oh yeah, you can use these switches with any of your switch app toys, and I go, <laughs> they're all broken, <laughs> right? So Oof. even if they're not broken, a family might only have access to one or two because it takes a lot of time to do. So, but what we wanted to do was say, how do we customize these toys to family? So this project I'm talking about is my Switch Adapter Kit, uh, which is basically, so Microsoft created the Adaptive Hub after, they released it actually after we started this project. Uh, so I'd like to say I did this before them. Uh, also Husky Adaptive, the Adaptive Controller before them, but that's oh, They're different just plug. jumping right? on They're the really wave. They're just jumping on us. But that system only works with Microsoft computers, mm-hmm. um, and it can be kind of hard to set up, right? So we kind of wanted a plug and play thing for our early intervention clinicians to work with. Uh, so we've kind of created a switch adaptive kit mm-hmm. that uses the Makey Makey, which is kind of like an Arduino, but it's just you plug in your device and it emulates key presses. So we started just using that uh, with some audio jack adapters, mm-hmm. but our clinician said that's a lot of wires, so we kind of worked with the capstone this year to create a safer housing for it. Mm-hmm. So now it's just kind of a black box with six audio jacks. So you have six inputs. It Basically, you get your four arrow keys, a mouse click and a space bar, which is mm-hmm. enough to do a lot of basic gaming or AAC. You can create, you can use it with an Apple device, which is awesome because iPads have a switch control mm-hmm. and you can set it up with that. And then you can basically use any custom gestures. You can set it up, you can play lots of different games. You could use it with Tar Heels Reader, all sorts of different activities. You can nice. customize it to the desires of the child and the age of the kid. Mm-hmm which is a big part of it, right? And I just plug it into any device. I can plug it in your computer right mm-hmm. now, and we could be gaming in two yes, seconds. Yes, that's great. Have you done any research with this? So we're, we're still in the really early stages of developing this device. Uh, so we're applying for some grants right now to get hopefully some funding to do some research, but we're doing, this is really a co-design process, mm-hmm. right? So this idea started with clinicians who brought a family to us. They said, we want to figure out a collaborative way for this two-year-old to play with her older sister. And that's how the Switch Kit was born. Uh, and really, the only reason we continue this project, this isn't what I thought I'd be working on during my PhD at all. I didn't know what a Switch was when <laughs> I started. But, right, is the clinicians were really excited. Because they were like, we walked in, uh, and they were doing, like, vision therapy with Elmo. And you could tell the kiddo was just kind of bored. Right? She wasn't engaging. Yes. But when we set up, uh, we set it up, you know, we cre- our team had created some different games and stuff on Scratch. So imagine uh, you press a button and Elmo starts dancing with music. Mm-hmm. And then you press another button and then suddenly it's a different song. Or maybe it's, you could have it set up for Frozen and Kanto music, depending on which switch you hit. Right? So you can just kind of really customize it to the kid. They could have so many different things mm-hmm. to play with. That's kind of where they started, right? Is everyone was excited because we saw engagement and participation. Mm-hmm. Participation. We saw fun, right? A lot of ways to explore and interact with your environment. Yes. Quickly and easily. And that's why we've been developing it. And the really cool thing about the Makey Makey is you can use custom switches. So we've been creating a lot of different switches. My uh, undergraduate that I'm working with right now, Kate Bacoe, she just created this really cool switch that uses salt water. Because I said, we've been trying to build a head tilt switch mm-hmm. successfully for about a year. We've used marbles. We've used all sorts of different things. Yeah. Rolling around. Bolts. Nuts. Yeah. You know it. Name it. Salt water. That was the answer. Conductivity? Yeah. Salt okay. water is really conductive. Uh, so the other day, we walked into Target, and I said, let's try to find a contain- like a straw. Okay. Uh, 
We couldn't find straws, but we did find bathroom. We found like a bath, you know, like the toiletry travel yeah. kit. So I was like, well, we're going to get this. And we got some toothpaste holders. So we made a wand with marble. That was the fun one. But I went on vacation, uh, which PhD students everywhere, please take vacations. It's you Mental reset health and is think important. <laughs> but, you know, while, she, while I was gone, my undergrad was still working. Uh, and I came back and she'd come up with the coolest system. It was literally those toiletry bottles. It was one of those mm-hmm. with two wires hot glued into it, mm-hmm. separated, and with salt water in there. And then we taped them, to, and she taped it to sunglasses. Okay. So it's a head tilt switch. Oh. So when you tilt forward, the water's not connecting yeah. to the switch, but then you tilt backwards a little bit, and the salt water connects those two wires mm. reliably because of gravity, right? You don't have to worry about marbles getting to the wrong place. How about the surface tension? Uh, do you ever experience the, this idea that you are going to have some... Uh, little droplets of water. Not really with is enough water, right? You just kind of fill it with salt water. You can make it yeah. more or less sensitive depending on okay. how much water you put in there. Cool. So surface tension That's isn't really cool. a problem. But right, so you just tilt it back and boom. Great. You have a reliable switch. It's lightweight. And if your kid accidentally opens that bottle and drinks it, it's not going to hurt them because it's salt water, <laughs> it's right? It's salt water, So yeah. really, when we're designing, we want something that's robust, easy to use, easy to build because we really want anyone to be able to build their own switches instead of that $75 switch. Mm -hmm. So we're using cardboard. We're using conductive tapes. You know, we're using anything you can find. That's great. We're using fabrics. We've been using a lot of textiles and Mm -hmm. stuff. Actually, Sasha helped me last year doing some of the first uh, e-textile switches that were just soft and conductive. We use a conductive foam and some conductive tape. Boom. You have a really nice, really sensitive switch. Switch pillow. Exactly. To be <laughs> uh, so if anyone wants to see some videos of Sasha smashing her head back and forth on a pillow, I have them. Oh, goodness. <laughs> <laughs> but, right, is really building switches that you can even t- we can turn stuffed animals into switches, maybe even sew on some button mm-hmm. eyes, and then a child just presses their hand onto that stuffed animal, and boom. Yeah. Something activates. Okay. So it's really making child-friendly switches and something that's low cost, cause Maybe you're still trying to figure out what's the ideal configuration, right? <laughs> Sometimes it can take months, years to figure out access sites. So something that's low cost and easy to build yeah, is perfect. That's great. Um, I like that the um, ground of all of your research work, whether you're doing early mobility or, you know, accessibility like how they're using the early mobility or it's the switch kit um i like that it stands all on the um increasing engagement community participation for for kids with disabilities i think that's a very important uh work i'm pretty sure we're gonna learn more uh when we hear what uh, the ilab uh is gonna do with their data because i i definitely um think there is a lot more uh, impact that's going on on a lower level than us engineers tend to look yeah, at right? maybe, yeah. <laughs> we're we're very uh we mostly look at gross things uh versus whatever is going on on the inside um but yeah no i think it's very cool i mean it's important to measure the qualitative side of things too absolutely so hopefully you know like really how do we, in some great ways to do that might be, I'm hoping to learn some skills in photo joy, photo voice and other 
measures. What's a photo voice? So photo voice is where you give, right, so if you give a family technology, say, like, the Switch kit Mm -hmm. for a month or two, Mm -hmm. uh, you want to know how they're using it and kind of what they think about it. So sometimes interviews aren't the best way to do that, right, especially when it's a physical thing, right? You want to see how they're using it. So what if you gave them a camera? So Mm -hmm. this is Heather's, one of Heather's favorite things, too. She gives families cameras and says, hey, go take pictures of things, like, so maybe you give them a prompt, like, show us a picture of something that was frustrating. Okay. Right? So, you, have, you know, they have the photo, they have the camera for a couple months. Yeah. Right? And you come back and you say, okay, you know, here's all your, you know, like, let's go through all of your pictures together. And you say, okay, let's choose, show me a time that's frustrating. Right? And then, you know, the family together can kind of say, go through the photos and say, oh, this picture. This shows something that's frustrating. And maybe it's a child in a ride-down car trying to drive on mulch Mm because a lot of playgrounds have mulch yeah and they're not accessible right or maybe it's show me a time that you guys had a lot of fun right and it's a kid pulled down the curtains while they're in their explore mini right so it's just it gives the family an opportunity to really show you into their world Uh uh-huh that's cool uh, yeah, qualitative research is definitely a big part of our research in rehab engineering and assistive tech. Um, and I'm definitely going to have like a separate episode on that. I just think it's a very important thing that us engineers tend to forget about. And I think we struggle uh, to understand how forget. to quantify it, right? Because yeah. we always want a number. We numbers, want to... numbers, 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 numbers. Yes. Sometimes it's not numbers. Yes. Um, right? I want to remember it's a person behind the technology. Absolutely. Sometimes we get obsessed with the, whoa, that's really yeah. cool. I know sometimes it's easy to say, whoa, look at that robot or look at that BC, you know, brain-computer interface, right? You can yeah. use it to turn on and off a light that's so cool yeah but how many times can they turn on and off that light yes that kid doesn't want to be turning on the, yes. and off the light repetitively mm-hmm. they want to be playing a video game with it yeah. with their siblings yeah um from your perspective and your experiences how accessible do you think research and academia in general have become recently <sighs> and how far do we have to go? There, there's a lot to go. Um, yeah, I think we're... So, right, it's like asking the NIH for funds, right? I was writing a grant and I asked, okay, how do we get funds for accommodations? And they said, yeah, you can do it. And then somebody else said, no, you can't. And another person said, yeah, you can. Uh, on their website, they say they can. Um, but, at, right, then it's trying to figure out, okay, how do you quantify what accommodations you need? There's no guide. Right, everything, right, there's a lot of awesome work from uh, some of our other collaborators here at CREATE on accessibility in research and how you accommodate different things and kind of this interdependence in the research team, Mm -hmm. right? So one of my uh, lab mates had a uh, mobility thing, right? So for her, sometimes walking around the space was really hard uh, and when she'd get really tired. For me, I, uh, for those of you who don't know, I am hard of hearing and wear hearing aids. Uh, so I get really tired communicating sometimes, right? Especially in a big space, it's hard for me, uh, right? Conferences can be a nightmare. I get really tired uh, midday and usually go take a break. But, right, so sometimes it's working together to accommodate, right? So maybe it's, <laughs> okay, you're going to work out the desk today, um, but 
you're going to do all the communications. Or sometimes we use sign language in the research lab too, right? And honestly, we were, our motion capture space is really big. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we would use either home signs or ASL to kind of communicate things back and forth sometimes, which also works really well because some of our kids use mm-hmm. ASL. Okay. All right. So it's kind of accommodating everything, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe it's just day-to-day too, right? Maybe somebody's sick. Right, I got in an accident earlier this year and lost my sense of balance. So I was walking around with a hiking pole. I was at the desk then, <laughs> right? Because I couldn't move around that easily. Right, so it's flexibility. That's what accessibility is, mm-hmm. right? And for our participants, it's having NIH also not accommodate just the researchers, but also providing funds to accommodate our participants, mm-hmm. right? So whether that be, okay, so we pay for parking. Can we also pay for bus passes mm-hmm. to campus, right? Maybe helping with child care costs. Yeah. So families can participate in research easier. Yeah. Right? Or maybe it's, okay, can we write things in plain language so anyone can understand? Translating our consent forms into other languages and being able to hire interpreters to come during sessions, right? Wouldn't it be so nice to yeah. be able to Absolutely. offer these services, but then NIH and NSF still aren't covering them. We need to... Make sure our research studies are reflecting the world around us. And that's going to be multiple languages. Yeah. Right? It's A lot of flexibility. And, I mean, we work with kids of all abilities. Mm -hmm. So, right, saying how can we accommodate the process to, you know, make sure our research is including kids who might, you know, sometimes we block out kids who have something else. Mm -hmm. Besides just, you know, a motor disability. We say, ah, you can't have anything else. But, you know, like, we got to accommodate that. Right? So, how do we make our places, you know, how do we make our research studies accommodate different sensory things, mm-hmm. right? Maybe that's different, using different, saying, okay, we're not going to do this part of the data collection because a kid can't handle, you know, the feel of motion capture dots on them. Yeah. Or really just accommodating. Yeah, um, for sure. And I mean, uh, academia sometimes doesn't feel like it's the most inclusive place. Create, create here is wonderful, right? We have totally. a community here where disability is pretty well represented, mm-hmm. right? But I go to conferences, and I go to a conference, and I request captions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm go- remind me, I'm going to accessibility conferences, right? So you think these would be the best place, yeah. right? And I have confirmation there's going to be captions. You know what I get there? And there's not enough? None. Captions. <laughs> so I think Gosh. I cried the other day when I was at, at Resna Rehabilitation Engineering Society of North America. You knew what there was? Captions. Uh, okay. I was so freaking happy it's great because i was like i don't have to like waste all my mental ability just to understand what's going on oh i i use captions exactly it's useful with kids right when your kids are sleeping and you just want to know like what's going on in that video please exactly (laughs) captions Captions are amazing they help everyone they help people who are you know learning english as a second language absolutely (laughs) um can i still ask you a last question I, I hope this isn't. This hasn't been too tiring. We have been going on for a lot, actually. <laughs> hey, you know, I I love talking. Okay, that's great, <laughs> great. Um, your next steps. Um, I mean, you have a couple more years uh, of a PhD. We're not gonna say how many, right? Uh, no one knows until you Defense. are literally like a day before your defense. Um, 
hopefully <laughs> they like, give you the and hopefully the defense they're like you're done yes have, uh, go have a beer <laughs> what what are your next uh major steps where where do you see yourself going with this so well let's let's talk the for the sh- the short term. So I just submitted an NIH grant to hopefully uh, cover me for the rest of my PhD. Fingers crossed. Um, where, you know, I kind of proposed my thesis research, which is going to be looking at both that Explore Mini I was talking about earlier and the Puma technology uh, and doing continuing on with my switch kit stuff if we get some more funding for mm-hmm. that. Uh, but, you know, after that, really, you know, I'm going to get the PhD. I'm going to, you know, I built, designed this proposal to kind of give me the tech, this tools I want mm-hmm. right so I'm gonna get that qualitative side I'm gonna get my biomechanics side right mm-hmm. and with that we're gonna try to do some easier technologies right IMUs markless motion capture all the new tools uh, right and then I'm gonna really get the accessibility side too great but afterwards I really I want to keep doing what I'm doing I evaluate different technologies so that they're covered by insurance right I really work on the design and uh, evaluation of pediatric assistive technologies. Okay. So yeah. it's, I want to be in clinic Great. during research, right? So that whether that be using new technologies like the Puma or things that aren't even on the market yet and using new ways to measure them. Okay. And really work, right? So there's a new BCI technology coming out of Canada called uh, Think to Switch. It's a brain computer interface mm-hmm. that you just pop on and it's a switch, right? Mm-hmm. So it's so not use, so invasive. Use, huh? It's not invasive. It's not invasive. It's uh doesn't even take, you know, twenty minutes to set up an EEG cap. You just kinda of pop it on. Impressive. And, you know, do a little calibration uh-huh. and boom, you're ready to go. I just got to play with that at a That's conference. Great. It was so cool. But like it's not, you know, here in the US yet. So do maybe maybe my next steps is gonna be doing some of the okay. work with that. Is saying how can we get that into families and cover by insurance here in the US. But there's going to be so many new technologies coming, right? We got the, you know, Biomodem Spark. We got the Trexo. Who knows what's going to be here in three years when I'm finishing up my PhD. So it's really, you know, even just the basic things, you know, like bath seeds and crop and supportive seeding and gay trainers. Nobody's done studies with gay trainers yet, Mm -hmm. really. So we need kind of that quantitative evidence. But, you know, we're starting to get the qualitative. And that's an important part, and I want to be there, too. Yeah. But we also need the quantitative things, because that's what insurance, unfortunately, wants, is they want, okay, this to show that families are using it. Mm-hmm. And so it's going to be me, hopefully, I want to be in the clinics. I love working, mm-hmm. you know, cross-disciplinary. Yeah. I'm not the expert. I'm an engineer. <laughs> I, am, I don't have any clinical training. We'll, we'll acknowledge yeah. this right now, right? Yeah. So it's working with that. But being around the kids I work with, and the families, and the, you know, the clinicians. So being in clinic is kind of the yeah. spot for me. But I also love teaching, so I kind of hope to find the best of both worlds right. where I have my clinical lab, mm-hmm. right? And that's, you know, probably 60% of my time, but I still want to teach. I love mentoring. You know, I've been helping with the Capstone program here at UW the past couple of years. Nice. I got to teach last year in the Husky Adapt Design program. Okay. So kind of finding that sweet spot where I can be cl- clinical, Mm-hmm. but also still have my own lab with graduate students. That's awesome. Okay. I love hearing um, your exciting plans. <laughs> I wish you a lot of luck on them. Uh, PhD can be tough, I know, <laughs> but you got this. Um, I think... It's, I, it's good if you got the right people around you. You're running on a lot of passion, which I think is going to get you through it uh, much 
easier <laughs> and less painful. Um, thanks for coming today. It was Thank a pleasure you for having me. Talking, it was so much fun. Talking to you. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Yes. <laughs> this episode was powered by Create, the Center for Research and Education on Accessible Technology and Experiences at the University of Washington, and Resna, the Rehabilitation Engineering and Assistive Technology Society of North America. Thank you all for making it all the way to the end of this episode of Gears of Progress with awesome Mia. I really hope that you enjoyed it as much as I did. Before you go, don't forget to show some love for this podcast by rating it on your favorite platform. And stay tuned for the next episode of Gears of Progress.